So we're the ones that are creating the just right challenge for someone to face their fears, um, tolerate the distress of, of what eating disorder recovery requires, and reconnect back to who am I as an occupational being? Who do I want to be? An occupation is defined by Merriam-Webster as an activity in which one engages. It's a lot more than a job. It can include eating, exercising, working, shopping, socialising, parenting, education, time spent on spiritual practice, the list goes on. Here's another one for you. An eating disorder can be considered an occupation, but it's one that's bad for your health and bad for your well-being. Recovery could also be defined as an occupation, and that's why occupational therapists can play such a key role in eating disorder recovery teams. I'm Elisa Roberts, and I am an American in Australia, uh, <laughs> is one identity that I really hold. I'm also a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle in the Occupational Therapy Program, and I, um, I would say I'm a master certified coach and speaker in a method that really aims to disrupt diet culture and other socio-cultural patterns in our lives. We've never had an occupational therapist on the show, so we asked Elisa to spend a bit of time in the studio to take us through the role of an OT in recovery from an eating disorder. I want to define occupation before I define occupational therapy because it's really key to understanding uh, what occupational therapy is. So most of us think of occupation when we hear the word as a job or a career, and it is. Uh, to us, it really means the meaningful activities that we humans are innately driven to do that build our identities, that help us belong to community, and that influence our health and well-being. So it's far more than a job, and it's really those meaningful activities that shape who we are, and they influence our health for better or worse. So an occupational therapist is someone who uses occupation as their intervention, as their um, both the means and the end. So we use occupation as our therapeutic tool to work with individuals to help them regain their potential to do occupations. So we're part of the rehabilitation field um, and, you know, we help people get back to the skills for the job of living. And that's uh, Part of the rehabilitation field is probably why we have you here today. We'll get into that in a minute. But as somebody who is quite an expert on OT, where does it come from? Is it a new kind of a thing? It's over 100 years old now. So, yep, it had its um, centennial in March of 2017. So occupational therapy was officially coined as a profession in 1917. So we really emerged even before that unofficially in what would be called the moral treatment movement, which is when individuals started to recognize that people, particularly with mental health conditions, needed to be treated with much more dignity and, and respect than they had been treated. And that one of the ways that leaders at the time and philosophers and health providers at the time were recognizing that what influenced people's health was engagement in meaningful activity and purposeful. And then we really saw ourselves boom during World War I. Um, a whole consortium of, um, at that time, women uh, were shipped off, literally, um, into the trenches during World War I, um, much sometimes to the dismay of the generals and such. 
to basically be entrenched with soldiers who were experiencing either physical injuries due to warfare or what was known back then as shell shock or what we would now really understand as combat stress or post-traumatic stress. And the intervention that we did back in those days was engaging the soldiers in meaningful activity, tasks that were purposeful to the war effort yet weren't necessarily on the front line and, um, you know, like basket weaving to, you know, contain bandages in the medical teams and other types of occupations, meaningful activities, and they got better. So we came back from there and the profession was formed and we've seen ourselves really diversify our practice um, to the point where we work with in, in neonatal intensive care units with premature babies all the way through individuals in the palliative or end of life experience. So really wide and diverse and in mental health and in physical rehab. I, I've just, I, I didn't think that that would be such an interesting answer, but that's, <laughs> that's so cool. Um, so as an OT, how did you get in, involved in specifically in eating disorder recovery? Well, I've been an occupational therapist since the early 90s and I was studying at that time, I was getting a master's degree in it. Um, I discovered occupational therapy a little late in my college career, which is very common for many of us because back then really people didn't understand occupational therapy very much either. And I ended up in the field of eating disorder recovery because I found myself in treatment for an eating disorder. So um, I was probably developing, well, I was developing my eating disorder for decades, but it didn't really manifest until I was um, probably a junior in college, which is a bit of a late bloomer, they would say, and according to, you know, myths and trends. Um, But it wasn't until I was about to go out on my mental health placement, which was already two years into my graduate studies, that it dawned on me that how I was relating to my body and food and my relationships was um, something was awry. And for me to go enter a mental health um, placement experience where I was going to be helping other people who were also facing substance use challenges or other mental health conditions just made me stop in my tracks and say, "Uh uh-oh, I think I need help because I don't think I'm well enough to do this. So I rearranged my um, education and really just told my parents, told my teachers, really sought help to realize that, wow, for several years now, I've been um, experiencing an eating disorder. At that time, it was diagnosed as bulimia nervosa. Um, Now, maybe there might have been, I might have been more of the nondescript or other variations of eating disorders, but at the time it was bulimia nervosa. Unfortunately, I would go through a first wave of treatment and even be discharged, recovered, and start my OT career at the same time. And I say unfortunately, but that was just my first round of treatment. What wasn't happening in those days in the 90s was really strong relapse prevention programs or relapse prevention as part of recovery. So while I had to declare to the um, licensure board that I was recovered because the Americans with Disability Act hadn't quite trickled down to protect us with mental health conditions um, in the workplace yet. So I declared I was recovered and 
as people would imagine within a couple of years, because my recovery wasn't that strong, I ended up relapsing. Um, so I maintained, I stayed in a state of relapsing and remitting, um, eating disorder for over 20 years because I didn't, because of stigma, um, in the times of, that I was practicing and, you know, obviously internalized stigma. Um, and it wouldn't have been until I moved to Australia where the damn thing followed me across the international date line. <laughs> Funny how you can't run away from it, isn't it? <laughs> like, no, but boy, did I think you could. Leave I it really, in the house. Yes. Keith, you know, limiting belief or pattern of people with eating disorders sometimes is all or none thinking, right? And I really thought if I just cross the international date line, it can't find me. And it did. And therefore, I um, had to really face recovering while I was here in Australia. And at that same time, because I took this job in this academic world, I was meant to come here with a research agenda. And therefore, my research agenda became um, investigating how do people recover? What is, what's the, I won't call it, maybe what's the secret to recovery? What are the ways that that we can learn from people with lived experience about how to recover from eating disorders? And what are the ways that my unique thinking as an occupational therapist can add to the evidence um, to help us, you know, intercept this thing called eating disorder. That's really interesting. And so you used what you were an expert in to help yourself recover, which makes a lot of sense. So what, tell me how um, eating disorder recovery and OT intersect. How, 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 does it, how does it work? Well, if we go back to that idea of occupational therapy being this profession that really understands how we, you know, how we use our time, how we, how we you know, what are the, the daily occupations that we engage in? What's the repertoire of our occupational identity? We can imagine that there's a lot of activities that people do, behaviors that people do that construct the identity of having an eating disorder. Um, that relate to how people eat, how people dress, how people relate in social, you know, social occupations, um, you know, whether or not they're engaged in work or school. So the way we come in is basically our role is to help people reconnect or recalibrate how they're doing their occupations from being harmful to being healthful. So it's really one of the areas of practice that almost couldn't be more well-suited for occupational therapists because the thing that's really hijacking someone with an eating disorder are their thoughts and their behaviors around how they're, and how they're doing their day. So who better than us to be in the picture to help people to reshape their thoughts and their behaviors and their identity to be engaged in occupations for good instead of harm. So one of the first people I interviewed for this podcast was Carolyn Coston, who's also American like yourself, and I'm sure you, you've heard of her. Um, you sound a lot like your approach to recovery sounds similar. Yes, we've actually met and uh, we definitely, you know, see quite eye to eye. Uh, I think that I, you know, She's now moved into obviously developing eating disorder recovery coaching as a, a specialty. And I would say that, you know, in some ways I could give her an honorary occupational therapy degree 
as well because of what she stands for and what she believes in. So we look at, we both look at the humans. And I would say that I speak on behalf of what occupational therapists think like. I've, I've been teaching occupational therapy since 1997. So I, I teach my future colleagues the same philosophy that we see the physical, the neurological, the um, psychological, the spiritual aspects of a human um, in our clients. And we see how that expresses itself in how they do their occupations and how they're influenced by both their cultural environment, their family environment, and often the physical environment. Uh, how so, do you yeah. work with your clients? What, like, what are some examples of stuff that you do? Well, right now, um, particularly in, in Australia, you find occupational therapists are in treatment programs, treatment centers. So they work both one-on-one and very often you see occupational therapists working in group settings. We are taught in our education um, group dynamics and group process very deeply, uh, along with um, therapeutic communication. Um, and we are taught around specialties of working in um, mental health. Uh, along with also working in physical rehab or neurological rehab. So you see occupational therapists in traditional treatment programs, delivering occupational therapy, both one-on-one and in groups, often those um, meal preparation or practical food groups. You see occupational therapists or in um, groups related to um, somatic types of interventions, like reconnecting back to your body. So there might be therapeutic yoga being used, those kinds of things, or expressive arts. Um, And you also see some occupational therapists working more um, in an outpatient um, setting in a one-on-one standpoint. So that's where we're working. What we're doing is working alongside the multidisciplinary team to help really translate what's happening perhaps with a psychologist or even with a dietitian into real life, because occupations happen in real life. So our job is to very much be the guide on the side while someone is engaged in meal planning, meal preparation, um, you know, shopping both for food and or clothing, dressing, um, you know, reconnecting back to what we call, you know, grooming, like putting on your makeup, putting on, if that's what you, you feel like wearing. Um, it's really about reconnecting back to your occupation. So we're the ones that are creating the just right challenge for someone to face their fears, um, tolerate the distress of, of what eating disorder recovery requires, and reconnect back to who am I as an occupational being? Who do I want to be? What have I let go of? Or what have I lost occupationally because of this eating disorder? And what do I want to regain? So that's, we do a lot of creative therapy, I would say. You've just taken me, so in in 2010, I checked myself into rehab because Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I knew I had a problem and I didn't know what it was. And I checked, I went in and I said, I have, uh, I'm a compulsive overeater. And they just wrote ED on the form and, you know, I admitted me. It was, uh, but the person that I worked the closest with was an OT at the time. So this is something that is, I guess, um, OTs work with a lot of people through a lot of different kind of recoveries. How, how is it that you look at people, at clients, in general, is there some universal kind of factors, depend like regardless of the mental illness or regardless of the uh, the disorder? I suppose. 
Yes. Yes. You've really tapped into um, something that I did want to make sure I highlighted that, you know, we are, we are trained to be mental health specialists, but, and physical rehab specialists. Then we're trained in um, working in the mental health field and we're trained in physical rehab. And even in physical rehab, you can't take the mental impact of a condition out of a person. So we're very much trained in the recovery-oriented mindset, that idea of really having hope and holding optimism and really understanding the holism of an individual. Uh, and so we really bring a lot of a, what we call a therapeutic use of self to our practice, no matter what area of practice we work in, um, mental health being one of our specialty areas. Uh, so I think that we really are trained to um, meet a client where they are, to be very client-centered, and also to bring our expertise in. We're tr- we train our, you know, I can speak as a trainer of our my future colleagues. We train our graduates and our future professionals to really negotiate that tension between what a client wants to do and what we understand as um, what's beneficial for their recovery, both from our clinical expertise and, you know, an evidence-informed approach. So yes, how we practice in the field of eating disorders is how we practice anywhere in the field. What is sensory modulation? Uh, And this is a word that I've only just, you know, been told that we need to talk about. Um, And why is it so important? So sensory modulation is the way that we humans um, respond to sensory stimuli sensory stimuli that comes in from our internal body and from the environment. So so we have sensation, and this is how we modulate that response to sensory input. So it's how we modulate our response to light, to touch, to sound, to movement, um, to the sense of touch on our bodies. Um, to our interoception in terms of our, you know, internal cues. So it's how we modulate these, this relationship with, with sensation. And some of us modulate, we basically, we all modulate our response to sensory input differently. Um, And there's a bit of a spectrum of it. You know, some of us love to go skydiving and some of us, you know, wouldn't, think of doing that because it makes us nauseous just to contemplate that kind of vestibular input of flying on a plane and that kind of experience of free fall, right? So we all have sensory modulation. It's a human instinct. What we're noticing though is that some of us have a sensitivity in a, we might be extra sensitive to certain types of sensory input or under responsive to certain sensory input than the general population, so to speak. And my research, along with several others across both all the continents, are recognizing that individuals with eating disorders, particularly when they're symptomatic, show differences in responsiveness to sensory input than and than individuals who don't have eating disorder symptoms or members of the general population. So this matters just because we've also seen as occupational therapists, we've been looking at sensory modulation for decades. And we know that for some individuals, if you have a difficult time modulating your response to sensory input, it can interfere with function. 
while we know that in um, other neurodevelopmental um, experiences, um, you know, anxiety, um, other ways of being, we haven't really explored it very much in the field of eating disorders, but now it's really gaining um, popularity. Among our audience, a whole lot of them are either in recovery or thinking about recovery mm-hmm. or you know, have recovered. Um, here, the, I'm going to ask you if you can give us some advice. What is some advice that you can give us as an OT who works with a lot of people who are exactly where they are right now? Well, for those who aren't yet working with an occupational therapist, I would explore the possibility of connecting with an occupational therapist because that occupational therapist is going to help you understand who you are occupationally. So it's really about the advice to you is to reconnect back to what do you love doing? You know, what makes you you outside of the behaviors that you do that perpetuate an eating disorder? So is it that you love writing or drawing or painting? Do you have aspirations to, um, you know, become a lawyer or to become an artist? You know, what are those meaningful occupations, those meaningful daily activities or idiosyncratic activities that make you you and let that work to build that more into your life and ways that you can do that so that you let go of the things that are probably keeping you isolated, um, socially withdrawn, um, lonely, um, and unwell. So that's one thing. And if you can find an occupational therapist, then they're probably going to work with you on understanding, like I've said, you know, understanding your mindset around um, engaging in, you know, daily activities and self-care. But they're probably also going to give you a sensory profile and understand how your unique modulation of sensory input um, presents itself and how you can actually use that therapeutically to, um, you know, to bridge the gap between being unwell and being in recovery. Um, and as creating more healthful ways of coping than how some of us used um, the way we treated our bodies as a way of coping. Yeah. Right. And what about what about other health professionals? What um, what what are some things that you wish everybody knew? I wish everybody did know a little bit more about occupational therapy and and you know didn't think it was so mysterious. Um, I'm hoping that maybe after this podcast, people will understand, you know, that we really use people's daily activities as the means and the end um, in the multidisciplinary team. Um, So I wish they'd, you know, get to know an occupational therapist. I also hope that health professionals really begin to educate themselves on eating disorders and um, really understanding that there are still a lot of myths uh, around, um, why people develop eating disorders, how they happen, how they present themselves. And lastly, I really, really encourage health professionals to watch their language (laughs) because I think we can, in the medical model in particular, we can pathologize people's way of presenting themselves. And that is proving to be, I think, pretty detrimental in some of the aspects of um, eating disorder recovery, particularly around how we name eating disorders and how we um, characterize people's sizes and shapes and relationship with health. So I think um, all health professionals can do a bit more of checking themselves 
in terms of are they perpetuating a weight centric or weight biased or even fat phobic um, message to their clients. And I'd really invite them to reconsider that because that's actually, I think, creating more harm than good. Oh, you're singing to the choir here. I love it. I could talk to you about that for uh, for ages, but we, we are out of time. But So anyone who uh, wants to find out more about you, wants to you know read some of the things you've written or follow you on social media, where can we find you? They can find me on social media at, at Elisa Roberts PhD. Um, that's primarily on Instagram. And then if you Google search Elisa Roberts, you'll find my university webpage with lots of information about me. And you'll also find my um, coaching and speaking webpage as well. That's um, E-L-Y-S-A. Yes, E-L-Y-S-A. Yep. Roberts. Yep. Sure. And I guess I, I do also want to acknowledge that we have several occupational therapists who are um, credentialed now uh, in terms of um, have designated, have a designated credential as eating disorder specialists. And I think we're going to put that in the show notes. So that's also a way yeah. that people can directly um, connect with some occupational therapists if they're not already meeting them in the treatment teams that we're, we're on. I think we've even just been... Um, welcomed into the treatment team up at the residential treatment center in the Sunshine Coast. So it's exciting to see us infiltrating, so to speak. Yeah. Amazing. Show notes. Check out to find out more about that. Uh, Elisa Roberts, thank you so much. Dr. Elisa Roberts, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. If you missed any of Elisa's details just there, I've put them all in the show notes. If you think you need to find out more about occupational therapists and how they could help you or someone that you love, Butterfly can help. Go to butterfly.org.au or call the Butterfly Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's 1-800-334673. They have a database of professionals who can help you with your recovery journey. Before we go, I'd like to ask you a little favor. If you could open the app that you're using to listen to this show right now, scroll down and find the prompt to leave a review and a rating. Leave us a few stars and a few words and it would be hugely appreciated. Butterfly Let's Talk is an Icon Media production for Butterfly. Our producer is Camilla Beckett, and you can go to iconmedia.au to find out more about what we do. I'm Sam Icon. Thank you so much for your company. 